Thornton Wilder who once said, and I get this from Paul Zoll, that the task of the church is to find new persuasive words for old but timeless truths. Today's two words are temptation and sin. These are pretty loaded words in the church. And I admit, as someone who's been thoroughly groomed in a reformed theology, at Lent, it became a, the church became the great revolving door in which justification was simply for a moment, and we were back out in common grace again, which is not grace at all if you're looking for salvation. And we experienced Lent with every but, bit as much uh, gloom, if you like, and existential despair as any medieval church at their greatest and at their worst, which was at the same time. It's just too tempting to go there. And a lot of it is that the culture is not using these words at all. You'll not see sin in most people's lexicons on broadcast television. And temptation is something we're so much playing with that we'd rather put that off to the side as well. Now, these things still happen. They hold a great deal of sway in our lives. But when you don't have the words to describe what people do when they do something they shouldn't and seemingly can't stop themselves doing it, it's very difficult to help them to stop if they actually decide that's what they want to do. When they are led into sin, failing a word to call it, that's where they stay. We do experience temptation we just don't talk about it, and when people do something they apparently can't resist doing and get caught, we use the term inappropriate. <laughs> I love it. We talk about poor choices and actions which, in the context, are out of place. Inappropriate, which is the opposite of the adjective appropriate, which means suitable or proper in the circumstances, or the verb appropriate which is to take something for one's own use, typically without the owner's permission, which is about a good description of sin as I've ever heard, and is exactly what most of us are bent upon doing, given the chance. Our whole lifespan, in fact, is lived right there between the appropriate, what we can get away with, and appropriating whatever we can get and get away with, and act nice as well while you're doing it. The two notions then, that of being seen to be doing the right thing in the circumstances, that which is appropriate, being frequently linked to the appropriation or misappropriation of what in the circumstances was inappropriate, define our lives. Adam and Eve, Jesus in the wilderness. The two tempting and sinning, the one tempted and not sinning. And Paul summing it all up. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, loaded language right now for trying to be politically correct, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Finding new persuasive words for all of this is quite a challenge then. And Paul talks of sin a lot, 
And the Bible talks a lot about condemnation. And Paul talks of righteousness and of life. Each the proper consequence of appropriate and inappropriate behavior. We note that the righteousness of the one, however, is sufficient to the unrighteousness of the many. Adam and the new Adam. Adam and Eve in the garden, a classic case of miscommunication. What God says to Eve, and to them both actually initially, we have it verbatim, and it's this. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. This is what's appropriate, good choices. You know what choice you're to be making. The servant takes it, and rather in the manner of broadcast television, you can make your choice. They're all the same, the way I see it. The serpent says, God says, what the serpent says, God says, is this. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. God says you may surely eat of every tree in the garden but one. Serpent says you can't eat of any of the trees, can you? He comes up to Eve and suggests that keeping body and soul is going to be a challenge for them unless they find something else to eat. And as we said before, the animals are not on the menu in God's original plan. You eat fruit or you eat nothing. So Eve has heard, though, what God says, and she's added a little gloss of her own. What Eve says, God says, is this. We may eat of the trees, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, yes, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, yes, neither shall you touch it. Wait a minute, lest you die. Now, God didn't say anything about touching. He did go on to say, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That day you eat, you die. Now, interestingly, Adam and Eve are going to go on to prove that he didn't seem to really mean that when he said it. So it gets very, very tricky. But we're not here to say that when God says something, he doesn't really mean it. We have a whole world to help us with that. I can draw one thing from this right away. It's very nice to have things laid down in black and white. And what God says is what is clear, it seems to me, when you go back and read it carefully. But what is said and what is heard are two different things. That's what communication is all about. And when humans hear the law, we don't react to it very well. God says you can eat anything you want. If you eat of this one tree, you're dead. But already that one tree is too much. You can feel how that is brewing in Eve's soul. She is already obsessed with that one tree she can't get to. And Adam is too, as we'll find out. The prohibition expands. You can't even touch it. God doesn't say that. But the tree becomes a hook to hook them. And the serpent, of course, has made God into a real killjoy. And then he hisses out his venom and rattles his tail. You will not surely die, by the way, just for the record. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Everything about this is true. They do die after a rather extended life and all of the rest of it comes to pass. So the woman looks and touches and takes and eats and passes the fruit to the man. Then what? They don't die. 
But they certainly now seem to know a little bit more about evil than they knew and a little bit more about good because you get them both where before you had neither. You just had life and life was the way life was meant to be. There were no struggles. You did what you had to do and what you had to do was what you wanted to. Augustine had this little logical square in which he said in the garden we could sin but we could also choose not to sin. And by choosing, we wouldn't sin. Wouldn't that be nice? After the fall, we could sin as much as we wanted, but we could not choose not to sin. We were always going to sin one way or the other. In the new creation, we will not want to sin, so therefore we will not choose to sin. It won't even be within our purview. All we will want is to do what God wants us to do. We will have perfect freedom. God's will will be our will. Wouldn't that be nice? That's gone for them. And with a few leaves, they quickly stitched together a couple of skirts, uh, which then they used to try to obliterate the difference between them. I guess they will find out about that too, and how knowledge and good and evil will all begin to be intertwined with gender. They found out what's good and evil and what's true and what's false. It's an expensive lesson. And don't tell me now that they're experiencing this as a matter of appropriate, inappropriate, of what can we get away with? How can we make this work? How can we talk? What's our language? How can we put this behind us, you know, and move on? They would like to. It doesn't happen quite that simply. They have not, for instance, they know not just the sweetness of forbidden fruit, but they know now what it is to disobey God. In fact, if you like, to compete with God, to see yourself as God's rival, as René Girard says, and actually see that things will happen if you indeed do not do what God says to do. It's called power. And this is a very dangerous thing to know of. So, this sin, through a process of trial and error, leads eventually, through various disasters, to the coming of Jesus. And with Jesus comes the possibility that the progeny, the very distant descendants of Adam and Eve will indeed have the opportunity to be given life, eternal life, by the one who gives his life on the tree of life and the life of God, which they will now share, partake of, participate in. And if this ultimate union with God is the goal of all creatures, it's the one thing they were made for, the one thing that was put in their hearts, then there will be no one in the new creation who, like them, will not know what it is to sin and to forgive and to be forgiven. No one but one. One of my favorite phrases from Paul is when he says to a truly irascible church like they all were, do you not know, know ye not, that we shall judge angels? In other words, we, running around like keystone cops in this utter mess, don't forget, are going to judge angels. Because we know something that angels do not. 
Angels do not know how to sin. They choose God because they have no choice. We know how to sin, and we also know how to choose God by choice. How that choice is given to us is a conversation we have, and it is given. And how we receive it, we may find out a little more. We'll see what we can bear of God's truth on the other side. But however we apprehend it, we are given that understanding of what a sinless life can be, at least in Nuce, and the promise that we shall know it one day and nothing else. Now back to Lent, and then I'm done. Lent is in some way for us to re-experience with a kind of second naivety what it is not to know Jesus, because Jesus has made it clear, and our articles of faith and our catechism are very clear about the assurance of salvation. That if you're in Christ, we don't really have to quaver in fear about our ultimate destiny. We don't even have to have, in some way, the prayer that we're going to go out of here on a good day. There is no mortal sin, or we don't really know what it is. We don't even have to be enjoying the sweet peace of God every moment of our lives. I'm not sure Cramner and his company were, and they are my heroes, particularly delighted to be on the stake. But they went there singing that beautiful hymn, Psalm 51, with confidence in the absolute assurance of what Jesus had done for them, that this ultimate union with God would be theirs, theirs to enjoy forever. So what do we make of Lent? What do we do with this time of purgation, this time in which we are to look into ourselves, scour ourselves for our sins, and from there receive some kind of illumination which will lead us to that final union with God? I suggest this that Lent is a wonderful time to take up those practices of denial because the one thing a practice of denial does is it allows you to know how much you have hooked into things that maybe you really wish you hadn't needed so much. We do days as clergy when we fast for one miserable day and by four in the afternoon <laughs> all we can think about is food. I'm sorry we go through all these lovely surfaces and all we can think about is when is our next meal going to come and I think Lord you get it how this is edifying and he says I do and you'll see how you are hooked into that. Now begin the battle not to eat that's all begin the battle not to eat and the battle is best fought in some ways by learning to surrender to surrender that battle to God. You don't win anything in terms of motivation by thinking of the law or the punishment of the law because it's not going to hit you because we're saved by grace, that most elusive concept. But you get there by thinking of love. And you think of love as the other side of law and that all the commandments we heard are given to us for some one simple reason to help us to love. We're built to love, to love God. We're built to love one another. There is no one we are not permitted, encouraged to love. And there's no one that we are not permitted, encouraged to love with all of our being. There's no limit to how much we can love. The limit is to how we love. 
And everyone that we love will be loved a little differently. And there will be boundaries and there will be covenants which we will be sensitive to, which will guide the way our love can be fulfilled. But it's a matter of learning to love. So learning not to be tempted and not to sin becomes a relational exercise. It's not just about me locked up with myself, micromanaging my innards with some kind of sin microscope. That's a high road to hell if there ever was one. It's about looking to the love of God and the strength of God in the grace of God to help me to care for others, to help me not to sin. As our colleague said, God knows our weaknesses. We want to know his strength and his power to save. And that power to save comes through working through this time of purgation by resisting temptation, but being motivated by that, not with the fear of failure and the despair that comes when we break down at 4.05 and hit the fridge because we know there's some Tom and Jerry's ice cream in there somewhere. And it's Lent, and heaven help us if we eat it. I mean, you can see how it spirals downward. No. And the thing is not to go away, to go in some cabin in the wood with no fridge. That may save a lot of people some grief, but you're never going to learn any strength. If your answer to resisting temptation is just to get rid of it, it ain't that easy, sorry, people. You need to be in the fire in the front line facing down that temptation and praying for help and strength and protection and mercy with all of your power. Otherwise, the list of things gets pretty small because everything that we are tempted with, 90% of the time, is something good that we're about to misuse. This isn't about being tempted to murder. It's attempting to use good things in the wrong way. And if appropriation means taking what doesn't belong to you, and that's the key to a lot of this, getting possession of what isn't mine, then the inappropriateness of sin is its push to see us possessed by what we want to possess in order to use it, to exploit it for our own purposes, passions, and pleasures, to get it under our control so it's there to give us those pleasures on demand. Because what wears us out in those times of temptation is that we really are walking very close with God. And what typically happens when you're closest to God is you sure don't feel like you're close to God. All you feel is your own sin. Read John Owen. He's written a book after book on sin and temptation. They are magnificent. The language doesn't translate so well. The sentiments, the psychology is timeless. You've got to be in the front line, dealing with that temptation, feeling it, handing it over to God, and at the same time, honoring the goodness of that to which you are drawn. It doesn't do to try to, to, to take all of creation and say, this is ugly, this, make it ugly for me, get it out of my sight. How utterly absurd when a good God has made it good for its happiness and yours. It's finding the right use of everything that God has given us, which is the task to salvation and to sanctification. So the purgative process teaches us to stand up to sin by letting go, not panicking when we're needing to control, but praying, giving up and getting out from under those things that control us as much as we can, 
cooperating with divine grace in a synergy which will cause our heart to be purified and with purity of heart, watching our loves change, our self-love more and more diminishing, giving way to a love for God and that love for others which asks for nothing in return. You love whether or not you're loved in return. You can't help loving others and you can't stop loving others. And there is no one who you should not and may not love. Again, it's how you do it that is the key. So my prayer for this Lent is for it to be not a gloomy Lent full of existential Nordic despair. I found my Reformed theology working just too gloriously in utter lockstep with that kind of fatalism. And it's not a good place, nothing to do with Reformed theology, which is glorious. But translating it into practice is very, very difficult. God has assured us our salvation, but for us to work through the veil of temptation is going to take all the strength we have, and that strength is going to be used asking him again and again for his help, because that is the hardest thing for us to do. Turn to him and say, I need your help. Just try it. That's all we need to learn. That's all we need to learn in life is to ask God for his help, to ask God to take over, to ask God to run things. Just try. Just try for five minutes. Try it for five minutes on your own steam. But the five minutes will turn to six, and the six will turn to seven, and the seven will turn to eight. We will get better and better in this thing. We'll understand that that kind of ache we have that comes from walking close with God, of not really seeing what's ahead, of hearing the gnawing of our own unconfessed, unhealed sin eating away at us is a sign that God is close, not a sign that he is far away. And let go of the world's idea of happiness and the churches that it should be under your control. You want something where you can press a button? Like for me, that bag of Cadbury's mini Easter eggs, which you can pop all day, and they give you that instant rush, and then half an hour later, this tempter is ridiculing you and saying, you've done it again. There's no hope for you. And translate that into anything you want. So we pray to God to dull the tempter's voice when he says, you failed again. That's all you can do. Look to God for forgiveness. Look to those we love to help us. And look to God to help us bring his love and the love of those we love closer and closer together. We will get faster and faster at recognizing how that love feels, how that really makes us live. And when we fail, we'll get quicker and quicker at finding our way back into his mercy, into his law, which is his love. Amen.